0: Recently on a visit with my parents, my mother reminded me I attended around 80 funerals before the age of 18, and this is not because I was a particularly devout minor, but because my maternal grandmother was the minister of music in our church, and my mother believes in funerals. It is very difficult to describe my childhood without discussing death and funerals. When my parents would get word of a community member or a loved one's death, the first question they'd ask is, who's hosting? Which was shorthand for whose house are we supposed to take food and drinks and hugs and loves to? Where are we keeping vigil until the funeral? and we'd pick up a box of fried chicken and a 12-pack of soda and head to the deceased family member's home. We didn't take wine. We were Baptist. And my parents would show up with food and drinks and hugs, and the process of mourning would begin. If this was day one of the funeral octave, there could be between five to 10 days more of visiting the grieving family, running errands for them, pitching in for funeral costs, and landing back at the designated house immediately after the funeral. This was the first 17 years of my life, and sometimes I wonder how I ended up a priest. (laughs) Because of the nature of my grandmother's position in the church, In my parents' lifetime of relationships in the city of their respective births, I was wrapped in an ecosystem of undertakers, funeral directors, and pastors, and what we would call professional mourners that I assumed every child had. There was, in this cast of characters, a flamboyant, legendary funeral director buried many of the people we knew and conducted a large share of black funerals in my hometown, much to the chagrin of more established funeral homes. When someone on my grandmother's street would die, Dr. Spencer, the funeral director, would stop by my grandmother's house and say, now, Sister Turner, when I die, I want you to sing at my funeral. But I want you to sing at my funeral, my grandmother would tell Dr. Spencer. (laughs) Dr. Spencer ended up dying tragically at a young age, 10 years before my own grandmother's death. For whatever reason, I was raised with a healthy appreciation for death not just through exposure to the rituals of my native community, but through regular discussions about death with my parents and grandparents who were mindful of the ways that they spoke about death. And how could they not be? That same funeral director who joked with my grandmother about singing at his funeral would ask my mother after funerals, are you in your expedition, Sister Greer? Yes, she would say. Well, I need you to transport these flowers to the cemetery for me. And away we would go to the cemetery with funeral flowers in the trunk of my mom's SUV. The flurry of activity around funerals I experienced in childhood is not unlike the many hands that make burials here at St. John's Cathedral possible from the flower team ably arranging flowers, to vergers and acolytes willingly offering their time to literally walk with families through the worst day of their lives, to lay pastoral visitors who offer their ears to listen to hospice patients, to our facility staff members who open the crypts on All Souls Walk so that the remains of those we bury will have a neat, safe, final resting place. The wake of death is a communal effort. Because in our tradition, we believe that no one dies alone, that no one is buried alone. We are each other's witnesses, the ones who say by our presence, I saw you in life and I see you in death. Gregory Hillis, a scholar of the 20th century monk Thomas Merton, recently attended a burial of a monk, Brother Harold, at the Abbey of Gethsemane where Merton lived and worked and died. In a short essay in Commonweal Magazine, Hillis parses out the most gentle moments of Brother Harold's burial. Quote, Along with the monks and members of Brother Harold's family, I processed to a freshly dug grave. Cistercians dig their graves very deep and they bury their dead without caskets. From my perch, I could see that a pillow had been placed in the grave on which had been placed a flower. There was also a ladder leading into the grave as his brothers lowered Brother Harold down, the monk standing in the grave gingerly held Brother Harold's head the way my wife and I would put each of our newborn sons into the crib, doing all we could to make sure that his sleep wasn't disturbed. Hillis ends his essay by saying, I witnessed the care and love of a community for one of their own. A care that extended to the very depths of the grave and learned that to confront our mortality is to come face to face with the reality of how deeply and truly we need each other, End quote. This sentiment, of course, was not present in the rich man's consciousness when, while scheming to enrich himself all the more, his life suddenly ended in isolation of his own making. Another casualty of the self-made person, a term at odds with communities that show up on one another's doorsteps with food and drink and a listening ear. None of us are self-made. We are most fully human when we realize our utter dependence on one another, the earth and the God who accompanies us even in the valley of the shadow of death. Whether that valley be the seeming desolate landscape of mass gun violence, or the isolating forces of lethal white supremacy, or the terror of waking up with Walmart on your to-do list only to arrive and realize it is now a crime scene. It is the God revealed in Jesus Christ who emboldens us in those moments to push through the impulse to give up, to retreat, It is only in that thwarting of isolation and embracing of the humane dimensions of our common life that wisdom is found. And when death comes, however unexpected, we are then joyful and ready. Amen.